people through their music. Out of the Box with Joey Watson. On FBI 94.5. Hello, FBI radio listener. Yes, Joey Watson here. This is Out of the Box. That's the show. If this is your first time tuning in, uh, every Thursday from midday to one, we get to sit down with one guest and roll through the records from their life and the stories which have defined them. Today, my guest is Bree Lee. Bree has written and spoken extensively about sexual assault, drawing from a very personal journey through the Australian legal system. For a year, she was a judge's associate on the district court circuit in Queensland, where she was exposed to some of the worst rape cases in the country. It was dealing with these traumatic stories that spurred Bree to confront her own history of sexual abuse and do something very few survivors of sexual assault have done. She took the man that assaulted her to court. Her book is Eggshell Skull. It's an examination of the toll that our justice system takes on women and all survivors of abuse, quickly becoming a leading advocate in this space. Bree Lee, a warm welcome to Out of the Box. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. No worries at all. Um, off the top, the, the title of your book, as I just mentioned, is Egg, mm. Eggshell Skull. What's the relationship between an eggshell skull, whatever that is, and the the book's contents, which is basically a very personal journey through the issue of sexual assault. Mm. So eggshell skull is a legal term, a legal maxim that stands for the principle that you are responsible for the entirety of the ramifications of your actions. So the hypothetical situation normally given to sort of explain it is that person A strikes person B, but person B has a skull that is as thin as an eggshell, and so they die. And this maxim um, says that you must take your victim as you find them. So person A can't turn up to court and say, oh, but, you know, it's not my fault they died. They, They weren't as strong as a regular person. I shouldn't be responsible. Um, And it's something you learn pretty much first year of law school. It's something that's always really interested me because it's a question of um, criminal liability. And it's a reminder of how we expect people to behave to each other when they're going about their lives. So to sort of take responsibility for their actions. And what does that mean if we're talking about sexual assault then? Yeah, it means that, I mean, for me, I suppose, because I guess I'll try and speak for myself, for me, what I actually wondered and why I gave it this the title of my book um, was because I wondered, you know, the, the maxim is all about the weakness of person B, but I wondered if it would be possible to make person A sort of regret that they had to take their victim as they found them because person B might be so strong and so determined and so well-equipped and so supported to try and get justice. And so I guess... Um, you know, there's just this presumption of, of victimhood and a lot of narrative around um, victimhood. And I, I'm a, I'm a part of that sort of, I guess, proud movement to, to change the narrative to that of survival and um, strength. What, what job did your dad do when you were little, Brie? Yeah, so I grew up with a dad who was a cop, a police officer. Um, what and sort of cop? So he did general duties for three years and then went into prosecution. Um, and so as a police prosecutor, he was working at the magistrate's court level, which is sort of like a lot of traffic offences, a lot of um, sort of low-level violence, but also a lot of domestic and family violence. Did he talk to you about his work? Was that something you were exposed to when you were little? Yeah, yes and no. Um I suppose he sort of, you know, tried to shield his kids from, you know, the sort of horrors of it. But, 
you know, if that's if your parents do a job, it it, le- it leaks out the sides, you know. Um, and even, you know, he might not have necessarily spoken all the time about the horrors of his work, but definitely we would talk about justice and about law and about, you know, him catching baddies. What would he say about justice? Yeah, we just had this way of talking about justice that um, he, well, he would say never look for justice. Um, Why not? Uh, well, he just, I guess he was one of those, he was just cynical. He was really cynical, I suppose, and um, just that, you know, he he was the one who always reminded me that juries find people guilty and not guilty, not guilty and innocent. Um, and he just sort of had this sort of gnarly old cop way of looking at things and, you know, lawyers getting people off on technicalities. And, yeah, he was just pretty uh, kind of cliche like that grisly old cop who who just sees all the baddies that get away and doesn't, I guess, reflect on... I guess, the good parts of the system and when it does work. Well, what did you decide to do when you finished high school? Yeah, I went to I went and did law. Um, and I still, I, I really loved learning about law. And even though I don't, I'm qualified to practice now. And even though I don't practice as a lawyer, I genuinely believe I use my law degree every day. Um, and I'm extremely grateful for the education and the way of looking at the world it has given me. Um, because it's all about learning about how our society came to be the way it is, power structures, the way we interact with each other on a personal and professional level is influenced by, um, you know, tort law and contract law. Like all of these things are really interconnected um, and it teaches you to be really critical in your thinking and um, to reason and to read and write and speak and listen in a particular way that I'm really grateful for. Um, And then, of course, when I um, finished law school, I got what I thought at the time was the best possible graduate job, which was as a judge's associate. Well, before we get into that, let's Mm. go to some music. What's the track Mm. we can play from your childhood, (laughs) Brie? I have chosen Independent Woman Part One by Destiny's Child. Um, I have very, very strong memories of watching Charlie's Angels and then listening to this song on single track repeat on my metallic blue CD player with that year's So Fresh CD and the lyric book open on my lap. Lucy Liu, with my girl Drew, Cameron D and Destiny, Charlie's Angels, come on. Question, tell me what you think about me. I buy my own diamonds and I buy my own rings. Only ring your celly when I'm feeling lonely. When it's all over, please get up and leave. Question, tell me how you feel about this. Try to control me, boy, you get dismissed. Pay my own funnel and I pay my own bills. Always 50 50 in relationships. The shoes on my feet, I Charlie, how your angels get down like that? Charlie, how your angels get down like that? Tell me how you feel about this. Try to control me, boy, you get dismissed. Pay my own funnel and I pay my own bills. Always 50-50 in relationships. The shoes on my feet, I thought. The cloth
Tell me how you feel about this Do what I want if how I wanna live I worked hard and sacrificed to get what I get Ladies, it ain't easy being independent Question, how'd you like this knowledge that I brought? Bragging on that cash that he gave you as the front If you're gonna brag, make sure it's your money you fund Depend on no one else to give you what you want on my Reach for your Walkman. That was Destiny's Child. <laughs> Don't thank me if you are thankful for it. Thank Bree Lee. She is a writer, lawyer, sexual assault survivor. She's also my guest on Out of the Box today. A warning, sexual assault is occupying a big part of our chat today. So, Bree, what's the role of a judge's associate for, for a legal novice like myself? What, what does a judge's associate do? It's basically a fancy word for assistant. So you are both the legal and um, you're sort of the secretary for the judge. You help them organize their travel and their, um, you know, documents. But you're also a legal assistant in terms of, you know, each judge is a little bit different. But um, for my judge, I would sort of help proofread documents, um, help with some legal research when required, um, get folders and files ready for court. And then when I was in the courtroom, because my judge did mostly criminal law, it would be things like, um, you know, pulling jurors' names out of the barrel and marking exhibits of evidence when they are tendered and keeping meticulous minutes of courtroom proceedings. What was the, the document that came to you on the first day, the one that you had to proofread? Yeah, um, I very much got thrown in the deep end. Um, my judge did, yeah, as I said, mostly criminal law. And in the district court, that means sex crime basically it's just clogging up the system and that's sex crime against adults so adult sexual assault and child sexual abuse and the document I got given to help proofread and then prepare a courtroom to deliver was a what's called a judgment on a pre-trial hearing to determine so my judge was basically asked to determine whether or not a piece of evidence was admissible in at the trial so there was a pre-trial argument between prosecution and defense and pre-trial hearings like that have huge ramifications because if it's a particularly um, you know, strong piece of evidence, sometimes it can even mean that the defendant pleads guilty because they know their chances at trial are just so significantly reduced by the outcome of that pre-trial hearing. Um, and yeah, it was just a really horrific, um, a, a horrific um, sexual case of sexual violence with several counts of really physically violent, upsetting content. Can we go into the detail of that a little bit just to kind of get a sense of the the sort yeah, of, yeah. So, or, or the level and degree of, of crime that yeah. you're dealing with? So it was um, unfortunately what is a really common situation, which is um, a, a man in a sort of stepfather um, relationship with his girlfriend's daughter. That is unfortunately sort of... Um, textbook is an older male in a in within the sort of domestic family slash trusted friendship circle um the stepdad is an unfortunately repeating trope um and he had um the complainant um had alleged that he wanted to tie her to a hill's hoist 
and did do so in order to sexually assault her. And the prosecution had found the defendant's ex-partner who not only said that she ended her relationship with the defendant because his um, bondage and, um, I guess, kink requests were growing in intensity to the point that she wasn't comfortable with, but she was prepared to give evidence that he had asked her if he could tie her to a hill's hoist. So that is, um, you know, there, there are very strict rules about when evidence like that is admissible. And um, in this instance, for example, my judge ruled that the comments about bondage um, were not admissible because that's not, um, you know, we have much more progressive ideas these days towards, you know, people being into what they're into and that's fine. But the detail about that that man wanting to tie his ex-girlfriend to a hill's hoist and then going on to do that to his stepdaughter was so particular and so peculiar and so unusual um, as to basically defy the possibility of coincidence. And so he ruled that it was admissible. And of course, you can imagine when a jury hears something like that, that has huge ramifications for the outcome of a trial. So this was a historical case. So she was a child at the time that yes. this happened. Yes. Yeah. Um, a similar social setup came in the first case that you were actually involved in directly Mm. can you tell me about where you had to travel for that and and what happened there yeah so um the judge i worked for certainly that year did the most circuit of any or had scheduled the most circuit of any judge Uh, what does the circuit actually mean yeah circuit is what they are the word they use to describe when um judges from large city centers um have to travel out to regional areas because people we have this important principle that people have the right to have their matters heard in the location in which you know they live and go about their lives but the reality of the situation in australia is that you have a whole lot of small cities and towns that don't have populations that can justify having judges sit there full time. So with my judge in that year and a huge sort of part of the book is going out to Gladstone and Gympie and Warwick and Bundaberg um, and all of these places around regional Queensland and sort of dropping in for two weeks and trying as best we could to clear the list, the law list. Um, It was a young teenage girl who um, had made allegations against him and it was a trial for a few different counts of him having sexually interfered with her. And the trial went for, I think, two or three days. It's the average length of things like this. Um, And um, he was found not guilty. That was the first full trial I ran. Um, But, yeah, it's sort of... Uh, did did dealing with cases of this level of intensity impact you psychologically? Yeah, definitely. Um, How so? Well, I mean, we're now only just starting to have great conversations about vicarious trauma for pretty much anyone who works in the legal profession and has to come into contact with this stuff. But for me, it was very, I mean, it was just really triggering. And then, of course, it was exacerbated by circuit and just how isolating it is to sort of go out for two weeks at a time, come back home for maybe two or three weeks and go out again on the road and then stay in a, you know, a a motel or a hotel and just have nobody around you. Um, And all you're just left with is your own thoughts. It's a very extreme fly in, fly out (laughs) operation. (laughs) Yeah. 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 were people made aware that 
you were going through some pretty tricky stuff at that time? Were there resources, given the fact that, I mean, it seems to me kind of obvious that even if you didn't have a history of sexual assault of your own, that, mm. that that's traumatic to be exposed to those sorts of stories every day? Yeah, the um, we got given an, a sort of an associate's manual at the beginning of the year, and it included a phone number you could call for three anonymous sort of counselling or help sessions. Um, and I don't know, about halfway through the year, I called that number um, and they it was, it was like a Monty Python sketch, except really upsetting. Um, they didn't have any um, out-of-office hours in which I could access that service. And when I said, and then they said, you know, but we can fit you in if you, if you, you know, want to come in in regular hours. And I said, but how am I supposed to come in in regular hours if I'm working? And they said, well, you can get a note from your employer or your judge. And I said, but this service is supposed to be confidential. I'm supposed to be able to access it without telling my employer or the people I work with. And it was just like, yes, it is. There was no, um, it it was really abysmal. And so I managed to get one session that was sort of, it was like 7.45 or 8. So I could sort of rush over there before I needed to rush over to work at 8.30 and it was abysmal. Um, the counsellor I saw, and I'm sure there were many great counsellors, but the the one I saw just sort of st- just started telling me about how he had worked with all of these um, um, di- um, convicted men for domestic and family violence and all the gross stuff he had seen in his time and just sort of started having this pissing contest with me about whose job had the more yuck men in it it was so weird and he just like kept wheeling around on his wheelie chair with his like legs spread really wide and it was just like that was the last person I felt like I could really talk to like it was really abysmal it was bad experience what sort of state were you in oh by this stage I was um in a bad way um really keeping it together for work purposes but by halfway through the year definitely unhealthy relationship with self-harm alcohol um and just feeling like crap and and really grappling with whether or not I would do anything about what had been done to me. For some um, slight relief for a moment, perhaps, <laughs> yes. Brie, um, we've got LCD Sound System next. What's, what's the, the story behind this song? Oh, I just love this song. Um, it came out when I was towards the end of high school. I hated high school. Just groundbreaking revelation. <laughs> um, and it just, um, I don't know, it takes me back to a good time of sort of the first couple of years of uni once I had really started finding my feet.
LCD sound system pumped onto FBI radio today by writer Bree Lee. We're taking a very personal look at sexual assault today on Out of the Box. If that sort of thing might cause issues for you, feel free to come back to 94.5 at the end of the hour. Bree, what, what was the, the case that you worked on that made you decide, okay, I'm going to come forward with my own story of sexual assault and pursue justice? Yeah, um, so we were on circuit in Warwick, and it was a trial um, that we ran there, and it was the only trial we ran all year with a man, a male complainant. So it was a historical child sex abuse um, allegation or a number of allegations, a number of counts that had happened. This man would have been, you know, 50 or so by the time it went to trial, but um, what he was alleging was pretty serious sexual abuse by, again, his stepfather um, at the time when he was when the complainant was 15. So you're talking sort of 30, 35 plus years down the track. And there was almost no other evidence apart from the complainant's testimony. Um, and the trial was like all of the, the main part of the trial was over in a single day. It was the shortest trial we ran um, and it got a guilty verdict. And I mean, I personally, um, I believed the complainant, absolutely. Um, But I do have really conflicted feelings about whether or not a trial that was that short with that little other supporting evidence would have gotten a guilty verdict if it was a woman complainant. Because by that time in the year, I had seen so many trials where, in my personal opinion, the evidence was much, much stronger um, and had resulted in not guilty verdicts. How did... The, the victim, George, mm. react to the verdict. Yeah, so he... This was also the only time in the whole year where I saw somebody read their victim impact statement out loud. So a victim impact statement is something that complainants need to... or they can, if they want to, write up um, before the trial even starts. And they are heard... You know, if the trial results in a guilty verdict, the victim impact statement normally will just be handed to the judge... And there are very strict ways in which the judge can and cannot use that document to inform their sentencing decisions, Um, and it's quite limited. But it's designed to give the survivor at least one opportunity where they feel heard, where they can speak honestly about how what was done to them affected them. Um, And it is rare, but it did happen that George, um, this guy in Warwick, read his victim impact statement aloud to the courtroom. It's the only part of the book that still makes me cry when I think about it. It was just, he spoke about how how the offending had, you know, ruined his relationship with his mum, how it had made him question his sexuality, how it had given him, you know, sort of after he had to leave home just to try and get away from the abuse, how that had led to a life of, of pretty much, you know, poverty and, and real struggling for um, over a decade before he was able to sort of... Um, find more permanent employment and and housing and everything. Um, But what he really spoke about was the relief and the closure that he could now feel having having done this and having gotten justice. Um, And he was crying. And when he stepped down off the witness stand, he basically just fell into his wife's arms. And I almost had to get up and leave because it was just so incredibly um, moving. 
obviously. And it, I just have so much admiration and respect for survivors who take their matters to the police and try and get justice. Not all of them even, you know, have their matters go all the way through to the courts through no fault of their own. But um, when I saw how he talked about feeling on the other side of that legal process, I thought that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted to try and get for myself. How do you go about telling your partner or your parents that you're going to seek justice for something traumatic that had happened to you that I presume they maybe hadn't heard about yet? Mm, Yeah, I hadn't told anyone. Um, It's so hard. For a lot of people, for various reasons, um, it can be easier for them to tell the police than it might be for them to tell their partner or their parents. Um, Particularly in cases of child sex abuse, as distinct from adult sexual assault, um, telling the parents can be really loaded and fraught because it was, you know, mum's ex-boyfriend or or an uncle or or a grandfather or whatever. Um, For me, I mean, you know, a huge part of the book is just I have the best peeps. (laughs) I still have them. Um, My partner was incredibly supportive, continues to be. You know, my parents were incredibly supportive and continue to be. Um, but it's still so incredibly hard. Um, and since writing the book, it came out about a year ago, you can imagine, um, you know, my email inbox is just sort of constantly flooded with, with people sharing their stories with me. Um, and pretty consistently, um, people talk about how much it means to them that, um, after reading the book, they were able to tell the people in their lives about something that had been done to them. Um, and for a lot of people, that level of acknowledgement and understanding is might be all they really need. You know, they don't need it. For, different people need different things as survivors. Um, but it it's so it can be so isolating to have this knowledge and have this great injustice having been committed against you, and to to carry that alone. Who do you call to actually make the complaint? So for a historical case like this one. Oh yeah, I just called the cops. Um, I just called my local police station. And what do you say when you call them? <laughs> well, I said, um, hi, <laughs> um, I need to report a crime that was committed against me, like, you know, at that point in time, it was sort of like 20 years ago. Um, and depending on, you know, the, the cop I called just go, you know, there's a sort of a, like a sharp intake of breath and then they go, okay, um, you know, this is this is what's going to happen, depending on what state you live in. So criminal law is legislated by state, but also we have state-based police services. And so unfortunately, it is the reality of the situation that different police services are better or worse, or just better or worse understanding or resources for this stuff. But in most cases, if you just call the cop shop, um, they will then sort of see if any specialists who are actual sort of detectives um, or investigators are available. Is that what happened for you? (laughs) Yeah, so I went through a fair amount of detail with the officer who picked up the phone um, because there was nobody at that station from the um, CIB, the like sort of whatever it is, child investigative branch in Queensland. No one was available. So he took down a lot of my details, which of course was an extremely upsetting process for any survivor to tell the story of the actual abuse is like that's as bad as it gets um really in a lot of ways and to tell it just to a stranger over the phone and he took all my information he took my um 
name and contact details. And he said that somebody would call me as soon as they had the sort of, you know, time and resources that someone would get back to me. And I waited and waited and waited and nobody called. And finally, it was like two weeks later, um, I called them back and they had no record of my original complaint. And I think about this all the time. And um, I just think about how many survivors who are less assertive, who were less supported than I was at that time, who are less comfortable with the police for any kind of socioeconomic, let alone racial and completely valid issues, how many survivors would have not received a phone call and never called back? I think there would be a lot. They'd have effectively ignored you at the get-go. Yeah, I mean, I'm absolutely willing to hear that that was a you know, freak accident where somehow my complaint was legitimately lost. But I also think that as soon as somebody comes forward, our system has a responsibility to not let them fall through the cracks. And if these matters were taken as seriously as they ought to be by each level of the system, mistakes like this would not happen. So eventually you need to make the complaint again mm. and this time you go in person to the police station mm. what happened um when you had to make a statement how does that work yeah um again it's like a little bit different in each state depending on and it can be even different depending on which station you go into sure. but um, we're talking about a, a brisbane yes police yeah branch, just right? a regular brisbane police station um I had asked if someone at that station would be, like if there was a woman um, officer I could talk to, um, but because I was working full-time and had to go in, you know, off, like out of regular office hours, there weren't any. And so I arrived and I was seated in a small room um, and there were two male police officers and um, one who was sort of would end up being the primary investigator on my case, but then the other sort of walked into the room and just dropped a box of tissues on the table in front of me and just sort of sat down and um, I had to go through everything from top to tail in this little room with these two men and that was extremely upsetting but what I didn't realize was that they weren't one of them was sort of taking notes but they weren't recording any of that I then had to leave that room and go upstairs with the primary officer and then go over everything again top to tail in a process that took hours as he sort of typed it up line by line and made me stop and go back and repeat and clarify and he's like struggling with the word document formatting and it was just the most absurdly arduous re-traumatizing process like I cannot imagine why if if they had asked a single survivor what really sucks it's having to go over your abuse or assault again and again and again retelling that story why we do things the way we do in Queensland is is so incredibly backwards and frustrating in some way like New South Wales for example you can make your primary statement like that first initial statement and they can record it as a video and they can use that video again and again all the way through potentially to trial where it's used as your evidence in chief and like imagine how many times people like me have to like repeat their stories and don't want to um compared to somewhere like new south wales where you only necessarily have to tell it once if i um 
if you're okay with it, can mm. I can I ask what the story was? What what was the statement that you made to the police that day? Yeah, so it's mine was um no mine was a my I have a brother who's significantly older than me and it was his friend. It was not any kind of sort of ongoing um, grooming thing. Mine was not a sort of stepdad situation. It was one a, an incident one afternoon um, in the backyard of our family home, um, and. In a way, um, I suppose, compared to a lot of the stuff I saw that year, mine was nowhere near as severe. Um, but also the thing that really got me was that that man who offended against me still enjoyed a position of sort of trust and love within our family and friendship network. And I had to invite him to my 18th and 21st birthdays. And one Christmas he came and shared it with us. And it was just this like constant source of like shame and disgust and frustration that he was basically just lurking in my family. I hated it. Were you were you able to grasp a sense of the timing? Uh, like, for example, how old he and you had been when... Oh, yeah, it was when I was in primary school. Um, and so it was like a, a sort of issue was how old he was because I couldn't... I was not... I did not lie um, and I could not... I could not genuinely pinpoint like what year of primary school I was in. So a really big question then was around what age that would make him and therefore where the like where criminal like sort of culpability fell. So um we in the end he was um on trial on the presumption I think that he was sort of like 15 and 9 months because that was like the closest I could get to pinpointing the age I was at the time. Um but and that was sort of the premise on which he was put to trial let's uh, go to some more music we've got Fleetwood Mac now Brie mm. w- w- why are we playing Fleetwood Mac today I love Fleetwood Mac um, but also I remember this song so I've always been um, a runner go for a lot of runs um, and I just remember this song playing um, at the end of a particularly long run um, when I was just at the beginning of the investigation talking to the cops and just hearing her sing um, Break the Silence, Damn the Dark, Damn the Light and just like bursting into tears in my front yard. Um, this song now, I mean, I love Fleetwood Mac and now I listen to it, it makes me feel really sort of righteous and happy um, but it definitely um, also marks a particularly difficult point in my life.
Chain by Fleetwood Mac there. It's brought in by writer and women's advocate Brie Lee. Her book Eggshell Skull is published by Allen and Unwin. <clears throat> Brie, what is a, a pretext call? How does that work? A pretext phone call is basically where someone who's made a criminal allegation calls the person they're saying did it and get tries to get the person to make what we call it admission against interest, so statements that suggest that they knew what they did or that they actually did it at all, and the person who's made the allegation is recording the call, and the defendant doesn't know that. So what were you asked to do in regards to a pretext call? Yeah, I got asked to I got asked to do a pretext call to call this dude and um, try and get him to say he did it, basically. Um, How long had it been since you'd last spoken to him? Oh, like year, a couple of years, I suppose, um, easily. Um, but he was still, um, until I told my family that year, he was still sort of friends with my brother, for example. So I still heard about him. He was still sort of around the place. Um, and I got given a week to, um, I guess, think about it and prep for it. And it was terrifying, honestly. Um, it's really hard to explain, but it was the prospect that I would try and bring this up with him. The prospect that I even had to talk to him was terrifying, um, let alone try and bring this up, because certainly he and I had never spoken about it. Um, and the the thought that he would just get angry and sort of swear at me and call me a liar or or, or just, you know, if he got nasty and denied it or if he... I don't know, I, I just, it really chewed me up. I barely slept for a week. It was awful. And, and you sort of, you know, I was told to think about how, think about what I know about him and how I might get him to admit it and stuff. And it was just, it was so scary and so awful. What was the angle you decided to go with? Um, just that uh, my brother's 30th birthday was coming up and I wanted to, you know, just sort of clear the air um, before we were both going to be there, which is like... <laughs> Yeah, I had to, um, you know, it, it obviously subsequently got admitted as evidence at the trial and I was sitting in the in the courtroom, like, listening to that audio and I can just hear how terrified I was. So you're in the police station yep. and you call a, a, recorded, a recorded call to this guy mm. um, who you haven't spoken to in a few years, a step, um, claiming to be calling about your brother's 30th, uh, 30th birthday. birthday. Yep. How do you transition from that talk about sexual assault yeah great question um, that's that's the clincher I guess is um, I tried to make it sound as though I just sort of said hey look we're gonna see each other um, and I said something like um, just before we see each other I was just hoping we could sort of um, clear the air and just talk about that thing um, and his demeanor just in my you know in my opinion and my recollection of it is that his just even the tone of his voice immediately shifted um he sort of tried to say that it wasn't a good time and I just sort of pushed and said that if we could just get it out the way now that would be great um and then he he said yeah um yeah I think I know what you're talking about and then for the next 15 minutes it was just this sort of hellish awkward time where I was just like silently bawling my eyes out sitting in the cop shop um 
And, you know, it would have been great if I could have elicited more detail from him, but I just couldn't. Like, it was like as soon as he said, as soon as he sort of admitted to knowing what I was talking about, I was like, that, that's it, I'm fried, I'm cooked. Um, and then he, what was really, I guess, um, upsetting and complicating in a way um, was that two things. One, he said that one of the reasons he did what he did was because he had been offended against when he was a child. And the other thing was that he told me that um, what he did to me was not sort of an isolated incident, that he, that I wasn't the only one, that he did this kind of stuff when he was struggling through his, I guess, youth. Was he remorseful? Yeah, look, at the time he said he was, um, but his subsequent actions over a duration of two years um, suggests that he was not. <laughs> what were they? What What happened after that point? Yeah, so... Before he was even charged um, formally, uh, he hired a solicitor and a barrister, which of course he is, you know, totally um, legally entitled to do. Um, but what started was really a two-year process of him throwing as much money he could at his um, legal team to try to get me to back down and to try to really protract the matter to basically see if they could shake me off. Um, in my opinion, that's because they knew um, what is unfortunately the case, which is that lots of complainants drop out because their matters take two, three, four years and living with that hell on your shoulder is not always possible and definitely over the following years there were times when I came really really close to dropping out just because of how long it was taking and how horrific it is to just sort of feel like you're putting your whole life on hold until this awful thing is dealt with and so he made like for example um, a really sort of one of many examples I could give in terms of what I think he did that shows that he was not remorseful um, was that he got his solicitor to write a letter to the officers saying that my matter was so sort of um, trivial and, and baseless that the only reason the police were investigating it was because my dad used to be a cop, um, which is not only extremely insulting. Um, a letter like that, of course, is entirely legal, but in my opinion, it's unethical. Um, and it's also just really stupid because way to go getting the officers involved really upset and making sure they dot their I's and cross their T's. Yeah, good so, work. So how much time lapsed between you deciding to formally press charges mm. and actually going to court? Yeah, exactly. Almost exactly two years. And honestly, that is mercifully short. For a lot of people, easily the average is three and and that's largely because the system allows his lawyers to pr prolong that amount of time or is it something about the the judicial side of things um it's honestly um the more research i do is just it's really obviously a resourcing and attitude issue the people um like it, it just takes, you know, it can easily take a year or more at the police stage and then it can easily take a year or more at the prosecution stage and then waiting to try and get a court date in your state's district court or county court level can easily take six months because of the backlog. And it's just that every, there are three steps, those are the three steps, police, prosecution, court. And at every stage there is just such a backlog of sex crime and not nearly enough training and resources for the people involved. 
Um, and in my opinion, I mean, there's another legal maxim, like eggshell skull. There's a legal maxim that justice delayed is justice denied. And normally that's applied to the situation of a defendant. Um, but actually what I believe currently happening in Australia is that the number of complainants who withdraw their matter because they just can't hang out for three or four years results in severe injustice. It's an enormous and very stressful builder. Mm. What happens the morning of the trial? Um, you just get on the bus and you go to court. <laughs> and you go to court, just like <laughs> any other day. Yeah, it's terrifying. It's so awful. It's so, so awful. Like, uh, yeah, I just, oh, my God, I just can't believe I did that. Um, I can't believe how many people do that. I just have so much admiration and respect for people who, who do that. Um, and you get there, and normally if you're the complainant, you will be called as the first witness. That's just n- normally how things go in a trial. And for me, um, I got there, I met my parents there and, and the investigating officer and the prosecutor, and we were in a courtroom which a few years earlier I had worked in, and I went and was sworn in and sat on the opposite side of the courtroom. And were you cross-examined? Is that something that happens in a case like this? Definitely. The cross-examination is the worst bit, for sure. What, um, what was put to you? Oh, just that I was lying. Um, that I was, um, you know, just sort of fabricating these claims for whatever reason, or that at the very least that I was um, sort of... Uh, really badly misre- misremembering or whatever. Um, yeah, it, cross-examination. I had seen people just get absolutely ripped to shreds in cross-examination, um, particularly in cases where consent is involved. The level of victim blaming and slut shaming that still goes on in courtrooms is abhorrent, in my opinion. And I was saved from a fair amount of that simply because mine was a matter of, you know, child abuse instead of adult sexual assault. However, as a survivor, one of the things you are most afraid of is that people won't believe you. Um, And when you have to sit in front of a courtroom of... I mean, it was all right for me, I guess, again, a bit, because I was sort of familiar with with that process and with that setup. But for the average person who's just sitting in this completely alien environment with these really scary... Um, authority figures, a judge, an associate, all of this, lawyers and barristers and legal counsel, and then the 12 random jurors who are sitting there across from you, judging you, like that is the role they're given, and you are torn to shreds for hours. Sometimes it goes across to multiple days, basically on all of the ways in which you are lying. Um, as you can imagine, that is just really deeply, deeply terrifying and upsetting. Were you believed? Do you mean like what my verdict was? Yeah. 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 So there were two counts and he was found guilty on both counts. Where were you when you found the verdict? I was sitting in the back of the courtroom um, and I still remember... um, I still remember watching... You know, the the verdict took, I guess, around three or four hours to come back. Um, I remember being worried because I just knew from experience that if it took any longer, it might be risky and that the jurors maybe couldn't agree with each other or whatever. Um, But it came back after three or four hours and it was... I remember watching them file into the room and just... When they said guilty on the second count in particular, you know, when it was guilty on both, I just... I just um, obviously burst into tears um, and... 
the really, really deeply satisfying thing was um, watching the defendant stand up and be um, just because there was going to be then a short break between the verdict and the sentence. He had to be taken by security down into the cells underneath the building, even though I knew he wouldn't get any real jail time. um, And he certainly didn't get any real jail time. Um, Seeing him be taken away by a security guard to the cells after being found guilty um, was just so deeply, deeply satisfying. Um, And I don't take credit for the verdict because plenty of people um, take their matters all the way through to the trial stage and then get not guilty verdicts through absolutely no fault of their own. But I still, of course, it's just allowed me so much it's allowed me to find sort of closure and completely just move on and, and walk away from that part of my life with such happiness and ease. Bree, some music. Why are we playing The Preachers now? Um, I remember listening to Yanada. Oh, I love The Preachers for a start. Isabella Manfredi, super mega hero babe. Um, but I remember listening to this track, Yanada, the night before my trial. Um, and so much of it is about... Um, Sisterhood. That whole album is a lot about sisterhood. And um, in particular, I mean, I'm a writer, so lyrics mean a lot to me. Um, but in particular, um, there's this part in the bridge where um, she sings, and you've got nothing to prove standing up on your feet, even though people like to see you living down on your knees. Um, and also when she sings that um, you don't need to fear the future if you see what I see. Um, and I just remember bawling my eyes out. Um, the day and the night before my trial listening to Yanada and found it a real source of um, comfort and strength. It's not my- 
song that needs no introduction to an FBI radio audience, no doubt, Yanada and the Preachers, brought in today by writer Bree Lee. Uh, she took the man who sexually assaulted her to court and she won. <clears throat> uh, Bree, the day after the verdict um, was your birthday mm. um, and you had a party to celebrate both. Mm. There was a conversation you had with one friend who uh, had also been a clerk at one mm. stage, which was kind of truly poetic. Mm. Can you tell me that story? Yeah, so um, a recurring theme, I guess, throughout the book, um, and obviously for me personally, was the Hills Hoist. Like we mentioned at the beginning of this session, that that, that was the first ever, you know, really horrific, I guess, Ugh, like really horrific piece of yucky sort of detail that just lodged itself in my mind and then became this symbol that just represented the sort of disgustingly normal um, and repetitive sort of facts and figures that were in and out of so many of these cases. Um, and I had this party the day after the trial because, yeah, as you said, it was my birthday and I called it, you know, Bree's birthday and justice bruise or something, lol. And I told all of my friends um, about the result because a lot of them didn't know at that stage. Um, and, yeah, a friend of mine who had worked for the DPP, uh, we were standing in my backyard at this party under a, hill, a hill's hoist covered in fairy lights. Um, and... Yeah, she said to me that um, that the um, she had been working at the DPP when that guy from the from the pretrial hearing um, was eventually found guilty um, in his matter. Is that what? Yeah, yeah. yeah that's what I'm referring yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is and the guy that yeah had been with his stepdaughter accused of yeah of accused of really horrific sexual assaults and rapes against his stepdaughter um, and wanted to and and had wanted to tie his ex-partner to a hill's hoist and then did subsequently do that to his stepdaughter. And just, yeah, hearing that, that she knew that, that it had gone to trial and he had been found guilty, um, it just, I couldn't believe it. It was just, yeah, it really felt like just tying the knot uh, in some way of, or just closing the lid on that whole just part, chapter, chunk of my life in a really um, satisfying and kind of hopeful way. Well, with that, Bray, what can we play to finish up this episode of Out of the Box? Yeah, um, something I think about is that um, even if you get a guilty verdict, it's not just like rainbows and butterflies. You know, recovery is a process. Um, and you still sometimes get like waves of bad feelings. For me, honestly, for the most part now, um, why I picked this song, Feeling Okay by Best Coast, is that this awful thing that was done to me used to just be such a huge part of my life and a huge part of my identity. And now I barely think about it at all. And if I do think about it, it is with a great source of sort of pride and with a lot of the advocacy work I'm doing now and all of these wonderful emails I get from people taking their own abusers or assaulters to court after reading my book. Like, I feel really um, proud of the work I'm doing and good about myself. Um, but also it's not a sort of stark before and after it's a gradual feeling okay process. And I think Feeling Okay by Best Coast is a really great, I guess, representation of that. And before we roll it, as every week, I'd like to thank enormously my producers, Nicole DiPaolo and Bree Jones, who did a lot of work on this very intense episode of, of this show. And of course, Bree Lee, thank you so much for being my guest on Out of the Box today. Thank you very much for having me. 
podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts. Listener.